0: Socks on 35th is next.
1: Doors open on the left.
0: How's it going, everybody? My name is Duke Coughlin, and welcome to the Socks on 35th podcast. We are back with another exciting episode covering your Chicago White Socks. As always, I'm joined by our panelists, Jordan Lazowski and Nick Gower. Gentlemen, as if I even have to ask, how are we doing?
2: I always wonder if it's going to, like... If I'm going to hear like the life get sucked out of your voice as you do these intros, as we go through the next couple of weeks, I'm trying to get you like, is that the same level of intensity you had like week two now that we're on what week 16 of these? You're doing a good job. You're doing better than I'd be doing. I'll give you that much.
0: Well, you know, don't let my uh, forced optimism fool you. Uh, very, very <laughs> much, uh, very much to Jeff Joniak and me trying to really just show any positivity that I can
2: smile through the pain, right?
1: Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like we're all kind of every White Sox fan right now. It's just a weird mix of apathy and rage and sadness. And we're all just kind of, you know, going through it. And even, even watching the games like last week's games in LA and Seattle, many of them are winnable. But even though they lost, I don't, I'm not currently sitting here feeling like, oh, they, um, if they had gone four and two, I would be so invested right now and so pumped. Like, would I be a little happier? Sure. But I don't, i don't know it's just tough to to really look at this team even when they're winning and think like oh this is they have it or like this is the year or anything like we're kind of just running out the clock it seems like so not to be too depressing but i feel is how we all kind of are feeling
2: no the losses were symptomatic of a team where it's like nothing's going your way and not, nothing's probably gonna go your way at points it's like you're not making your own luck so you can't rely on lady luck to do it for you every time and that's Kinda of feels like what they do at, at times as an organization, as players, and here are the results. I think there's still plenty to talk about, especially with draft and trade deadline, all that coming up in the next couple of weeks. Don't get me wrong. But the play on the field isn't it isn't gonna be the main talking point for a long time, which is unfortunate, truthfully.
0: Yeah, no, it uh, it really makes you wonder when Project Southside is going to begin. But um, you know, anyway, just kind of, kind of rolling forward. I'm not trying to be that far down because you know, as a White Sox fan, West Coast road trips. Just, I don't remember a time in my 28 years on earth where West Coast road trips have ever gone well. Um, it just happens to be during a season where nothing is going well. So, correct. Yeah, you know, you got to take the, you got to kind of take it for what it is. But anyway. Like you said, we have quite a bit to cover in this episode. But before we get started, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and anywhere else to get your podcast. Also, be sure to check out the website at sockson35th.com. We will have plenty of great articles coming out about this wonderful team moving forward, as well as following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at SocksOn35th. All right. So, I mean, obviously we can do the same thing we usually do on this episode, uh, usually do on these episodes, uh, go through the past week of White Sox baseball. Like I said, uh, West Coast road trip, pretty brutal, you know, played the Dodgers, played Seattle. Um, The Dodgers felt like a very unwinnable series probably before we even started it. And we kind of made it competitive, which was a little bit more annoying than I think it should have been because I was kind of prepared to just lose that series, you know, gracefully. And we, we actually, you know, they gave us hope. For, for a little bit and that went the way it did and then seattle of course a team that is uh very talented but a team that uh definitely isn't like playing up to their potential right now you you really hoped you could have snuck a series out against them um nick i'll let you start how do you feel about the past week
1: yeah i mean kind of like you just said duke that dodgers series those games were surprisingly winnable and i think like you said that was kind of a surprise i was expecting either to be swept or to you know just fluke into one victory and move on to Seattle, which was on paper, at least a more, um, an easier team to play. But at the same time with LA, it was kind of funny where it was almost like Murphy's law with this team where Pedro Griffol said before, or maybe after one of the games that he was uh, not happy with the way the team was making contact and that they need to start uh, hitting the ball in the air, etc. Something that we all agree with. And then the next game, or maybe it was the game after they went out and did that, started hitting a bunch of home runs. And, of course, they were all solo home runs and no one else was getting on base and they lost that game in extra innings. So it was just one of those things where they finally start doing something that we've all been pounding the table for 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 years, honestly. I mean, I know a small sample. And it's not enough because something else goes wrong. The bullpen was, I thought, really good during the week just because they had to cover so many. As as Jordan, I think, talked about in a recent episode, when a bullpen has to cover so many high level outs it's really uh, taxing. But I thought they did pretty well. And even the starting pitching, I mean, Lance Lynn tying the franchise record for strikeouts in the games. I mean, if you told me before that game that he would do that, I would tell you that you're insane, like, given the way he's pitching this year. But he did it. So but like I said, it's just, everything is going wrong. And then you fix those things and something new pops up. So it really is the offense. I imagine that's a lot of what we're going to talk about today, just because they're just so underwhelming. It seems like there's no progress whatsoever. They're still chasing the sliders in the dirt. They're still struggling to take walks and get on base. And when they do hit home runs, it's pretty much always solo home run. So that that's how I feel. It's just I don't know when this is going to end and whether this is just bad luck or if it's a bad organization or a mix of both.
2: Let's start with the positives, at least. Like you said, Nick Lancelin, huge positive. Real, really nice bounce back, whether it's for him personally or for the White Sox as a team. Still, incredibly, by the time this comes out, still mathematically very much in this race or from the flip side of things. Um, if they're trying, if they're looking to trade him, um, in the next several weeks, very positive step in the correct direction. Um, mix all the stuff really well. Looked like a pitcher who realized, Hey, that fastball doesn't have the same zip on it. I got to be a different type of guy. And I think we've all mentioned that in past weeks, like, Hey, time to realize you're 36 and reinvent yourself. Um, So that was very positive to see. Hopefully that continues. Uh, Zach Remillard. I love stories like that, even though it's like, yeah, you're not going to get hyped up over the major league debut of a 29 year old. I just happen to like the story of perseverance and guys who maybe don't have talent that flies off the chart. Still being able to get some at bats in the major leagues, grind it throughout their careers. Um, I respect and appreciate those kind of guys. And it was cool to see the game he had on Saturday in Seattle. That being said, that was about it for the week. The home runs, I absolutely agree. Like, if you're looking for a positive on the offensive side, they've finally taken that. Step. Now they're hitting home runs, but now they need people to get on base before they hit those home runs. So it's like one step forward, two back, or two forward, one back, however you want to describe it. There was a positive there. That's about it, right? Like, I, I think if we're looking for some of the positives, it's like, yeah, two of those are true positives and one of them is like a half positive like you're finally lifting the ball in the air like you're gonna have to do a lot more of that before it becomes even a trend at this point
0: so jordan do you doubt my level of excitement for a 29 year old playing his first major league baseball game
2: yes maybe (laughs) i you know like i mean Let's let's look at it this way. I, I think all fans would feel different about it if it was under different circumstances, or if the team was twenty five games over five hundred. Like, yeah, lovely story, great. I just I, I just don't want the fact that this team has been as abysmal as they are to reflect or, or to um hide. In, I don't know what word i for. Maybe hide from the fact that you know it, it's cool to see him get to do this. Um, but if you're placing your hopes and dreams in him, um. I got a bridge to sell you, probably. That's about it. So.
0: No, I know. I uh, I just, <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm with you where I like, I love seeing redemption stories. I mean, I mm-hmm. think that's why me and you are such big fans of Clint Frazier. Like, it's mm-hmm. the story behind it alone is awesome. And then when they play well, it just kind of adds the entire, like, aura of the, of the situation. And, like, him coming in in his first game, you know, taking over for TA, who has just obviously been struggling in every sense of the word. You know, just absolutely going through it, whether it's on the field, off the field, anywhere um, for him to be able to come in and just play the way he did. I, I mean, come on, you you can't write it. You know, if if you were if you were making a movie <laughs> about Zach Remillard, that, that would be that would be like the ending right there. You know what I mean? Like it would be the build up to that moment. And then like I, I don't want to like I don't want to sound like bad about it, but like that's like the Rudy moment right there. You know what I mean? that's 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 a touchdown in the end zone and you know all about Rudy Laz so like I mean that's it's why that's why that's so easy to get excited about because you never know you watch the White Sox when they're bad you see somebody that probably would not get this opportunity on any other team and then you see just movie theater moments and that's why that's why I still tune into the White Sox because uh doesn't matter what the record is. This team is just a never-ending move, and it's great.
2: And that's what you want to see as fans. That's what you want to root for as baseball fans. You want to root for good moments. You want the players you root for to be guys you personally root for. Like You get invested in them because you like them as players. And it's like, this team doesn't have a lot of those right now, to be completely frank. A lot of the narratives around a lot of these guys have shifted over the past couple of years to be kind about. Um, some of it and be coy about it I guess stories like Remillard guys like Clint Frazier it's like guys that give you something you're just looking for something new to root for because what they're giving you on a day to day basis isn't satisfying it it's why fans and myself included have like enjoyed Clint Frazier at bats he gives you something different he gives you something to root for he's not breaking the world right now but he's something different to root for it's a good story to root for on a team that just simply doesn't have a lot of those, and it's frustrating.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think just my two cents on the Remillard uh, conversation. Totally agree. Great to see him play so well on Saturday, especially, especially as you guys have alluded to, someone who's been in the minors for seven, eight years without appearing in the majors. That's just, just really cool to see. That's what baseball is all about. But then, and this is not, this is not an anti-Remillard take per se. Like he didn't do anything wrong. But I see him batting second on in Sunday's lineup, and it's like. I get it, like maybe you're trying to ride the hot hand or whatever, but to have him second and Jake Berger eighth, like that's just there's no explanation for me. Even though Remillard reached base four times the day before, like if he were a, if Remillard were like a big name prospect who had a good debut, and like sure I get it, but you're talking about a guy who had a 79 weighted runs created plus in, in Charlotte, which is like a hitter's heaven. I know that's that's the league adjusted in 79, but I mean it was 21 percent below average and. You know, great to see him in the majors. I'm not saying like never play him again or whatever. I'm just saying why would you bet him second in a in a game that I wouldn't say was a must win. I mean every every game is a must win if you're trying to win the division at this point. But it was the uh, the rubber match of the series, and you bet Berger eighth and Remillard second. And I feel I feel bad taking out on Remillard himself because like, he did nothing wrong. He played really well on Saturday and then predictably not very well on Sunday. And it, it's just something that always bothers me. Now you have Jose Rodriguez up too, and I doubt he'll up for that long but even while he is like will he start at second base will will Remillard? like how is that playing time situation going to work out just another thing to to think about and it's it's again not his fault but when i when we talk about him i can't help but bring that up because that kind of killed the vibe for me a little bit
0: well you know and this is where it goes into us starting to take a closer look at pedro grafal's lineup construction you know i think it's something that we've been kind of alluding to the last few shows really, really this entire season, you know, maybe we really haven't been like gung ho about it, but it is something that's starting to become a little bit concerning. And, you know, when, there, when Pedro Grafal getting defensive about his lineups in the media, it's not, not the greatest look in the world, you know, not that I'm really into that like speculative type of media. I've always been type, you know, the type against that, but with the lineups that Grafal's been bringing out, with the inconsistency with a guy like Jake Berger, who listen, say whatever you want about his on base percentage, about his average, the guy strike out strikes out way too much. But he is one of the few absolute power bats in our lineup, you know. And when you have a team that's struggling to score runs, you got to kind of ride those guys a little bit. And I just cannot justify a guy who has, if if he were to qualify with enough at bats, would be top three in slugging in the entire major league major league baseball is not getting more at bats. He's not, he's still sitting in at eight. He's still sitting at seven. There are some days, you know, I, I, you know, I was talking to Jordan about this the other day. I don't think he should be anywhere besides five or six. I think he should be right in that area. I don't think he should be any higher because then you're kind of risking the point of potentially losing RBI chances with guys like, you know, well, Ben and whoever else is at the top of the lineup at the current point. Um, you know, I think you lose a chance at RBIs there with the guy that's striking out, you know, especially with Jake, how he is when he's trying a little bit too hard in the box, but I don't, don't think you can justify him being any lower than that. And him hitting solo home runs with nobody on base, because he's kind of batting with the lower end of the lineup. If we're being totally honest, you know, if you want to try to get creative about creating runs, you have a power bat. You have a guy who's proven that he not only can he hit at home, he can hit on the road. He proved that in LA. You know, he's a guy who he flat out rakes, you know, does he have the best at bats? No, is his at bats are actually very frustrating to watch, but he's a guy that, you know, if he gets a piece of a baseball, it's going to go far. And whether that's getting far enough to the back of a wall with one out with a guy on third base, you know, or getting over the wall like you did in L.A., you know, it's it's something where he's going to have to improve as a batter for sure. But I just cannot justify Pedro Grafal batting him any lower than six at this point. Like, especially with our struggles on offense, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Like if you want to hold somebody accountable for striking out too much, there's plenty of guys on the lineup. You can do that with, you know, and Luis Robert is a pretty good example of that for the most part throughout the course of the year. But once you start seeing his upside and you start seeing his power strike, you realize why he's in that point in the lineup. And then you see a game where Jake Berger's hitting very well. And it's like, why is this guy not batting until the third inning? That's just, that's my thoughts on that.
2: The Grafol stuff as a whole is interesting. And it, it's not just Grafol. I, I do want to make my next, or preface my next point with this. It's not just Grafol who does. This is baseball coaches in general. When asked for rationales for things, have this tendency to like kind of get def- and get in a super defensive mode and it's the exact same thing Renneria did that bothered me so much. Um, he had a, had a very similar quote to Renneria's when he talked about Burger batting eighth the other day. It was along the lines of "I don't care about what everybody else thinks; like I'm doing what I think is best. All you have to do is is give some lawyer speak type answer of you know just based on the matchups, based on what we were seeing with certain pitches and stuff like that." Um, we thought this was the best line of construction for the day. That's all you have to do. It makes it sound like you have a rationale behind. It. You're not giving away the secrets of the trade. Maybe if you consider giving those away, you'd hear something from fans like, hey, that's not smart or something like. But but the point is you're not giving away the tricks of the trade by giving it that, an answer that way. And it's giving you a more well-thought-out, composed way of answering a question. And again, this is not a Grifold problem. This is something a lot of managers do and a lot of hitting coaches do. For some reason, they like to get super defensive when asked questions that fans are curious about. Maybe it's the way the beat reporter asks it, or it's the way that it comes off as accusatory um, towards them. But a lot of them tend to do this, and it puts them in rough situations Because you end up reading more into the response on top of what seems to be a suboptimal lineup construction. All you had to do was give a little bit of justification for it. And it feels like he just misses these opportunities. Maybe it's chalking it up to being a new coach. Maybe it's chalking it up to, I get there's a ton of pressure in the job right now. You're learning on the job. You're with a competing team, a supposedly competing team that's not competing. So you got a lot of pressure. I get it. But there are just these self-caused situations that I feel like are so avoidable for a lot of guys, again, not just your fault, a lot of guys that they just don't take the opportunity to not self-inflict this type of harm against them.
1: Yeah. A lot of managers do it. And I mean, at least for the last two, a lot of White Sox managers and coaches do it too. And at least with Larusso, you kind of, I mean, not that everyone was like, you know, loving his answers, but at least he had something to stand on. Okay, fine, he's won World Series as a manager. So if you ask him a question, while it's annoying that he comes off as crabby and doesn't want to actually give you a response, like at least he has some stature. Like I I don't know. But but with Grifole with like Rick Freneria, it was it was or is just a lot more frustrating. And I remember the first time I had this sort of red flag pop up with Griffol was I think it was in spring training. It was definitely before the season at some point. So it must have been spring. When he yeah. was asked why is Andrew Benintendi like penciled in at number three, which if you remember, I mean, it seems like a long time ago, that was like his set spot for a long time. And the really, I mean, there really was—I mean, there's so many ways to answer that question that I think would have actually made some sense, you know, statistically or however you want to put it. But he just said like, "Oh, I have my reasons." And then when the reporter followed up, I don't remember who it was, Gravel just kind of repeated again, like, "Yeah, the reasons are there. Like, that's I like him at three. That's where it's gonna be." And it's like, just even if you gave like a shred of a, of a reason, kind of like Jordan was saying, like just said something about the matchups or whatever, then the reporter would just leave you alone, like acting like you're protecting some sort of like crazy secret that no one can ever hear as to why Benintendi is betting third instead of second or whatever. Like it's, I, I guarantee you that teams aren't going to look at whatever you say and then use it against you somehow. Or if they do, then that, like there's just no way that's going to affect a game that much. Like it's not that big of a secret. So it's a, it's a little weird how defensive he gets. And I think especially with the one on Sunday when he the end of that quote was something like if you aren't satisfied with that go talk to Jerry like invoking Jerry Reinsdorf and that's just interesting to me because he didn't say go talk to Rick Hahn or Kenny Williams he went straight to Reinsdorf so I don't really know what that means there are a lot of ways to to interpret that I don't I mean honestly I think probably it's not something that's worth reading that much into I think it was just a frustrated manager um, you know kind of just not having a great day and not appreciate not appreciating being asked questions but. Still, it's a kind of a weird response for a first-year manager to have, and it seemed very, um, very much like it wasn't. I mean, again, I wasn't there, but it didn't seem like the question was asked in a, uh, a negative light. Like it seemed like a question that was asked just because they wanted information rather than wanting to get a strong reaction or anything.
2: And I, I will say this: this this is the probably first compliment and probably only compliment I'll give Tony Larusa. Those one and two walks that intentional walks he decided to for whatever reason decided was a smart move he justified those he said look at this look at that you know like yeah he said like how can you possibly um go against me sure that was wrong but he at least gave you some sort of inkling into what he was thinking um again that goes that goes a long way like i don't think people understand like maybe they do fans have uh, access to so much information we're going to question the move regardless. It's not just, oh, he's the man in charge we have to listen to. It's like, no, there's a ton of information out about matchups and against this pitcher, that pitcher, this right-handed guy, this left-handed guy. There's so much information. We're going to question it regardless. You might as well give us a little bit of insight into what you used. We know you have more information, but still. like We have enough as fans to be like, hmm, yeah, this kind of checks out, this doesn't check out. Like that. That's better than... Like the the whole conversation the past couple of days have been: Is Grafal the guy? Is he going to be one and done? Is he just too frustrated? Does he not? It's like you could have avoided a ton of that in what's already a very difficult situation for you to be in as a first year manager.
0: Yeah, you know, and I I, I do want to start by saying that you guys touched on the Tony Larusa point, so that's I'm glad because I was going to bring that up because Tony whether you agreed with what he said or not, he did always justify what he was doing. You know, I I will, I will give him that. And, um, you know, dealing with the Chicago media can be brutal. And I don't, I totally understand that. I could totally acknowledge that. You know, I think you see with coaches all around teams in Chicago, you know, they get frustrated with the media, the media, sometimes they, they can, they can push it, but you know, Pedro Gaffal, your first year manager. This is the stuff you're going to have to deal with. You're, you're, you're managing Mm -hmm. the Chicago white Sox. Um, they're the other, you know, they're considered the other team in Chicago and we have a pretty diehard fan base around here that likes, likes answers. You know, even if it's not the right answer, even if it's not the true answer in your hardest of hearts, just, just give us something, please. Um, you know, and honestly, I heard, uh, I heard Ozzie Guillen on the pregame show, I believe on Saturday. And he was kind of touching in on this a little bit about, you know, like Pedro, like, this is, this is what being a manager is. You're going to have to ask, you're going to have to answer these tough questions. You know, you're going to kind of have to deal with this. You're going to have to deal with the media. Like you're not going to be able to kind of sit in the background and be kind of a, just another coach. Like you're the coach, like you're the guy, you are the face of this franchise, you know, whether you like that or not, whether you want to be the low key guy or not, everyone's going to have like, you're going to answer questions first before it gets to any players, you know, and it's as simple as that. And it's kind of your job to, kind of jump on the grenade and be able to answer those questions. So your players aren't pressed more to answer those questions, you know, cause if Pedro were to give a straight answer to something, and I know we're running a little bit long on just Pedro Graffal, but like if he were to give a straight answer on something, other guys in the locker room probably aren't getting drilled for questions nearly as much because they got a Pedro Graffal answer. Whereas if the guys in the media are not getting the answers that they want from the manager, they're just going to go elsewhere to go find it. So I, I really think that's something that Pedro should work on. Um, I do think the one and done stuff is little overblown. I think when we hired him, we kind of knew what what it was. Um, I think if this was a situation where we would have hired uh Bruce Bochi, who by the way is in town and by the way is the manager that I wanted.
2: But um if we look at that Bruce- roster and tell me it wouldn't <laughs> be the exact same thing if he was here. <laughs> do not slander Bruce look, Bochy in front I'm of me. Say- I'm not saying I'm not I am not slandering Bruce Bochi. I'm saying this is like trying to patch up a hole on the Titanic with like scotch tape right now. I I don't care who you put in as the manager. And that's what drives me nuts about all of this. I want Pedro fired tomorrow. I see these comments all the time. He should have never had a job, this and that all of this. It's like, look at this team. Uh, Who, who, who has this magic Bob, the builder crap that you guys think is going to fix this team. Like, I, I don't I know the
0: reference on SOX 35th like, pod.
2: <laughs> I, ju- I just, it drives me nuts. And this is not like, oh, I think Pedro's this great man. He might not be the guy for the job. He might not be a great manager. But how do you look at this team that's being run out here and be like, yep, I can, I can certainly say that this first year manager who came in to a very difficult situation and has been put into pressure right away with a team that's not built to handle that sort of expectations. What did you want them to do? Like, like yeah. if everybody thought Tony LaRusso was the guy, all the Tony defenders like, Oh, this is the guy he's going to get the most out of this roster. The most you could get out of this roster was 81 and 81 last year. Like, and that was supposed to be the pinnacle. Like, I, I just don't get it. Personally, it's like, again, it's not a huge defensive default. I have my issues with what he's done. But I don't think it's fair to judge anybody or, or call for his head of all people or have John Heyman come in on nat- or 670 to score and be like, oh, yeah, I think he might be one and done. That's ridiculous. Look at the situation put in front of you and tell me what magical person was walking in here and fixing this as is and And to kind of finish kind of finish my point because
0: I agree with everything you just said, Jordan. And that's sorry to have
2: cut you off, but <laughs> I was sitting on that one for a little bit and no, you, went with Bo- y- you didn't even mean to do it, but you did it right there. so I apologize <laughs> it's okay
0: I, I I poked the bear when I told you to not slander Bruce Bochi, which again, do not slander Bruce Bochy because I love Bruce Bochy. but anyway the point the point I was trying to make is, it would be a different set of expectations if you brought in a Bruce Bochi, because a Bruce Bochi would have felt like, okay, we are actually going all in right now. But when we brought in Graffal, it was like, hmm, this doesn't feel like all in. This feels like. But I
2: thought that's what La Russa was supposed to do. La was is-
0: all in, and I I agree with that. But I do think that was kind of Tony realizing, okay, maybe, maybe I don't still have it. You know, maybe, maybe baseball is drifted me by a little bit. Maybe I can't do a full, full MLB season. And I think he might've expected to win in those first two years, like actually go try to win a championship in those first two years. And when that was just not going to happen, I think he saw the writing on the wall. I don't know. There's, we could speculate that for days about what, what happened with that whole situation. Cause him and Jerry Ryan are still probably sharing liquor in the freaking you know, press box. We don't know. Um, uh, press box regardless.
2: All I know is that if my middle infield was Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon, I probably have a decent job filling out a lineup card that day. Yeah,
0: well, I could you know, I
2: could probably handle the lineup card that day too.
0: Well, it's also nice when they hand you about half a season of Jacob Degrom, which is like the most dominant yeah. in baseball. Yeah, it's like. It's healthy, I, but.
2: Yeah, it's like I I think I can handle this. Yeah, okay, not I, it's it's I just it's the the blaming of coaches and this is comes from someone who blames coaches way too has blamed coaches way too much in the past. The blame game for coaches has gotten ridiculous. Have these players take some accountability for the lack of performance? Like there is not a hitting coach on the planet that's telling them to swing at balls five feet in the dirt, like a Luis Robert at bat, slider that one in Seattle in extra innings, slider in the dirt, slider in the dirt. So, I could throw a half decent slider three times in the dirt. He might swing on one of them, like that. that nobody's teaching that. Stop blaming the coaches at a certain point. The same thing with this manager thing. Yeah, he hasn't been great. No one would have been great here. He's done harm to himself unnecessarily, but it's gotten out of hand from a lot, of, a lot of people.
0: Yeah, no, and I agree. I just I think the I think the one and done comments are just absurd. And, you know, just just to wrap up my whole point, it's like if you went and hired somebody flashy and you were still getting these results, then yes, you have that conversation about one and done. But when you hire a Pedro fall first-time manager. They didn't do that. They knew even if it was going to fall apart that that was going to probably be their guy next year cuz they're going to try to set the foundation with that and they're going to probably try to do a soft rebuild. But that's that's looking a little too far ahead. We have a trade deadline podcast coming up in a few weeks where we can really get a lot deeper in that. Hopefully this team is either, you know, sunk or swam by that point so we kind of have a better idea of what the hell this team is going to do. But um you know, I, we just talked about Pedro for quite a bit. You know, we talked about his loss, uh, his lineup construction, and Jordan, you touched on a really good point as far as holding these players accountable. I think it's a good time to bring in a guy who's probably been held as accountable as humanly possible on the Chicago White Sox, and that is Tim Anderson. You know, maybe not in held accountable in the lineup, but held accountable by nearly every single fan in the fan base, every single media member available. Um, I have my thoughts on it. I'm going to let you guys go first. Jordan, I'll let you uh, – you know, Nick, I'll let you take this. Action. Yeah, I've talked way too much. Me and Jordan Nick, talked ahead. a little bit too long there. <laughs> uh, and I, I saw your, I saw your eyes about Pop when he brought up the Louis Robert point. So I know you're feeling frisky. Um, how are you feeling about the, like, what, like, the whole aura of everything that's going around with Tim Anderson? Do you think it's fair? Do you think it's unfair? Do you think it's somewhere in the middle? Um, give me your thoughts on Tim Anderson right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, I wish I could give you something like. Like a really like spicy take right here, but I really don't have the strongest of opinions on this either way. Basically, my my take is that from an on-field standpoint, he obviously is not, has not been himself ever since the uh, injury in Minnesota. And while I commend him for coming back from that injury very quickly and getting on the field and trying to be there, it's obvious that he just isn't himself. So when you're not hitting as well as you are, there's no need for you to be you know pencil into the one spot every day which finally he was taken out of it and then in that same game got hurt and hasn't played since so there's that but in terms of the fan reaction to him I mean my I think we've talked about this on an, one of our first episodes probably but I think that I mean my personal opinion is I just don't really care too much about the off-field stuff like as long as we're talking about like criminal activity it's not something i ever really cared about too much however if that's something that's contributing to him on the field then I guess it's relevant and at the end of the day, he's just not playing well. So I think that, unfortunately, the most likely outcome from this is he gets traded either at the deadline or in the offseason and has a nice year for the Dodgers or insert team here and then gets a nice contract and free agency. Like I don't I don't think, and I guess this is my overall point, I don't think he sucks now. I don't think he's lost everything. I think he's just injured, has a lot going on, and maybe just, this isn't the environment for him anymore. I'm, I'm not quite sure. But as a hitter, I still think that all the talent is there I think that before he got hurt, I know it was only a couple, two, three weeks before he uh, got hurt in April, but he did look pretty good at the plate. I thought, I mean, I know he didn't hit a home run, but like he looked like the regular Tim Anderson in terms of the way he was just spraying balls to the opposite field. He was chasing, I thought, a little less, at least maybe, maybe I mean, I don't have the numbers up, but it just seemed like he was more willing to go deeper into at-bats than usual, and I think that might have been a product of the fact that he worked at line in the offseason and clearly is uh, trying to cash in because this... Uh, free agency that he's going to have not this year but the year after assuming his option gets picked up is that's probably like his one chance in his career at like that mega contract which whether or not he'll get it at this point is debatable given his performance but yeah long story short i think he's still i think there's still a good player in there a good hitter in there and i don't think that's going to come out in chicago unless for whatever reason he doesn't get traded and is still on the team next year and is fully healthy next year but who knows what this team will be doing, whether they'll even be trying to compete at that point. That's that's why I think a trade is most likely.
2: I, I think there's a difference between the conversations of, you know, does Tim Anderson suck versus, does Tim Anderson deserve the criticism he's been getting? The answer to the first question is, no, I don't think he sucks. I, I think he's still a very good baseball player who, whether he's here and healthy or whether he's somewhere else, is going to be a contributing factor for, I mean, he's only 30 for the next five, six years for sure. Does he deserve the criticism he's been getting? Yeah. I, I, straight. If you're going to hit 500, again, a lot of this, I, I've said this so many times on so many podcasts and so many tweets. When you are a hit first player and you're not hitting, what other value are you providing? Well, he's not playing great defense. He's not walking. So what's left? It, what's left is a shell of the Tim Anderson we all know that deserves to be criticized. It just, it is what it is. The whole concept of accountability, I'm not doing my job, I'm going to be held accountable. He's not doing his job, someone's got to hold him accountable. And that's necessarily the fans, but you would hope the manager, by moving him in the lineup, you got to send a message at some point. And then there's the conversation like, oh, and fans do this with a lot of players. Why is Tim Anderson getting all this heat, but the common player recently has been, why is Andrew Vaughn not getting any? Well, number one, Andrew Vaughn is getting heat. There have been a lot of people writing about how this is not what we expected in a first baseman. But also number two, Vaughn still has an OPS about 730. So it's not the same levels of disappointment we're looking at here. It's not two players hitting or having a 500 OPS and only one of them is getting criticism. It's one is underperforming um, what we expected from a top prospect in Vaughn, but is still performing. And one is a veteran who has proven that he can be a leader and a top of the order force and is not is not only not doing it, but is doing it at a sub replacement level. Like these are two different stratospheres we're talking about with with this sort of criticism. I, I think are there probably certain criticisms maybe with the personal life that are unfair? Absolutely. But again, it's fair game when it's affecting your on field play. Is he probably not hundred percent? Yeah, absolutely. I think the same as a history of rushing guys back from not necessarily being hundred percent because they don't have another option. But you, you, you have to if you're going to be a player in the spotlight. You at some point in your life you have to understand that everything that you do gets put under a microscope, especially when you're struggling. Like nobody's talking about X, Y, and Z if you're hitting seven fifty or have a 750 OPS no one no one's talking about a thing that's the difference it's when you're not performing and you're not providing value elsewhere scrutiny comes a a lot from a lot of fans and I think it's fair to an extent I I think there are people who go too far but the idea that like just because the historical norms or historical numbers he can't be criticized I think that's unfair to say
0: yeah, so I want to preface this preface this by saying like I'm a long time Tim Anderson guy. I'm still I'm still a Tim Anderson guy. I'm a huge fan of Tim. Um you know, you can say whatever you want about the off-field stuff. It's very obvious that's affecting him right now. It's very obvious like and, and you know that's that's normal in a situation if if what has been reported about what's going on in his personal life is true, there's not a lot of people who can function at a normal level even at a regular job with all of that Mm -hmm. going on, it is a very difficult thing to balance. And I'm not going to sit here and make some sort of excuse for whatever Tim did, but at the end of the day, that's, that's his business. You know, um, I think, uh, I think people would be very disappointed if they knew everything their favorite athletes did. And i and I'll probably just leave it at that. Um, and you know, I understand that there's always going to be criticism like that, especially playing in a major market like Chicago, um, that's, that is never where I'm going to make my argument against a player. And I don't care if it's a player that I necessarily don't like, you know, Aaron Rodgers is a little bit of a different case, but we're, that's, that's football. We're not going to discuss that. Uh, but you know, as far as like at, at a personal level, I don't really like going at athletes like that because it's just, it's, mm-hmm. it's really low brow in my opinion.
2: And also on top of that, we're bloggers, they're major league baseball players. I th- I think that needs to be, Uh, And even fans too. You're a fan. You can't do what they do. So I think that's a good point, Duke. So
0: they, uh, you spend money on uh, things that have your favorite baseball team's logo uh, that your favorite baseball team pays that guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's, that was, that was the way that it was put to me like quite a few years ago. And that's when it kind of clicked for me. Uh, But anyway, like, I, I think the criticism comes and it's deserved with his play on the field. And, you know, when you see him just throw a baseball like 10 feet over Andrew Vaughn's head, you really start to wonder where he is mentally. And, you know, when you hear the podcast that he went on, you know, and I thought he was very candid and I thought he was very Mm -hmm. honest and I thought he got, he got a lot of flack for that. But, you know, he answered those questions as honestly as he could. And that's kind of who Tim's always been. He's always been a very upfront, honest person. Um, do I love that that comes out during a time where he's struggling mightily, this team isn't doing very well. And, um, everything else that's kind of surrounding the Chicago White Sox right now. Not necessarily. You know, I think, I think that was a situation where Tim could have probably held off on having that conversation, you know, probably could have held off to the off season. Um, especially when you're discussing contract, your contract situation mid season, we saw how that worked out for Lucas Giolito last year. Like there's, there's a lot that kind of, you're bringing a lot of shine to yourself. You know what I mean? And this is me speaking as a big fan of Tim. Like, I just think, you got to kind of, when you're struggling like this, just try to avoid bringing a lot of attention on yourself. Um, you're somebody who has proven that you can be that guy. And Jordan, to your uh, your point about Andrew Vaughn and Tim Anderson, there's there's absolutely levels. Like, we know what Tim Anderson can be. And when he's struggling, we still don't totally know what Andrew Vaughn can be. Like, there's, there's definitely a difference there. And, you know, when you're a guy who's proven that you can be a genuine star in the game and you're struggling, yeah, they're going to come at you a little bit more. Uh, but you know, flat out Tim, isn't hitting well, he's not getting on base. He's not fielding well. Um, and he genuinely just looks like a guy who's just really going through it mentally. And, uh, it, I don't say this as somebody that wants him gone. I say this as somebody who probably thinks his best bet. If things don't turn around by the end of the season is probably getting a change of scenery. I think he might need that personally. Um, you know, especially when you consider the fact that, you know, I have seen a lot of, I've seen a lot of people saying like, you know, what could you possibly get for a Tim Anderson people? If you wait till winter, if you wait till winter meetings and you give teams a chance to get a crack at Tim Anderson and possibly get him in the building to try to negotiate a contract before he hits the open market. You'll be able to get something for Tim Anderson. Like, I don't I don't think that's that'll be a problem. Cause I think a lot of teams around the league are seeing this kind of media firestorm that's happening around Tim. And I think they're gonna be like, yeah, he needs to change the scenery, he needs to get the fuck out of Chicago, which I think there's a lot of truth to that, you know. And I think it's genuinely Tim's a guy who's always worn his emotions on his sleeve, he's always been a guy that's ran on emotions. And when it feels like his city isn't behind him, that can kind of affect him. And that's that's not that's not the fans' fault or anything like that. That's just, that's, I feel like that's where Tim's at. And I feel like, you know, while I'm a huge Tim Anderson fan, I always wanted to see him retire with the white Sox, you know, because he was always that type of level player to me. I think he needs to change the scenery desperately. And I think, uh, while the trade deadline is enticing, you know, and if you do get a good offer, you have to at least take a look at it. But I think if you wait, you get to meetings, you get to really start convincing these teams. Like, yeah, I think, you know, Tim is still Tim. We, he just, probably needs a change of scenery i think you'll be able to get a lot better of a return and i think you can really take a look at where your team's going to be down the down the road in the winter meetings to where you'll be able to get a return that better fits your plan for the next season that's that's really my biggest thoughts on the entire situation
1: yeah yeah i agree with you and i think that overall it, it's really more sad than anything i mean as a fellow to manners and family, we all are it's there's no better symbol i think of the white Sox rebuild from a timeline standpoint and that 2019 was kind of like his coming out party and that's when we all kind of started to feel good about where the rebuild was going how players were performing then 2020 and 21 were you know years where the team was fairly good and anderson was very good and he was the face of the franchise like the heart of the team etc and things start going downhill and now we're talking about trading him so i think that overall like i'm kind of i'm at the acceptance point of knowing that the rebuild is not going to produce a world series or anything like that's a thing of the past but it still hurts to see these players that we all loved and that we all, you know, got so attached to. It It hurts to see them struggling. is another one, not that he's struggling, but seeing them, you know, on their way out, kind of like no one really thinks he's going to be back here next year or potentially even in August. So it's sad. That's really all I have to say about it. I mean, it's like the end of an era, but probably necessary for both sides, honestly.
2: And it's what makes the concept of rebuilding or building something in general so difficult. You know, not every person is cut out to be that Derek Jeter type guy who never leaves home or the like, And that, that's just not everybody is that way. That's fine. I have no issues with it whatsoever that a player needs to change, change the scenery. But if you're going to try and build those long-term building blocks, you're hoping to find those guys who do that. And that's not something you can find in a stat book book or anything like that. That's what makes this super, super hard too. And it's one of the biggest risks of rebuilding is finding the correct building blocks. Maybe Tim Anderson was part of that, absolutely, and was certainly something to build around, but is it that long-term foundation piece? Maybe not. Maybe he's a guy who needs that change of scenery when things aren't going right. That's fine. Not everybody is built the same way, and I'm fine with that. Um, but it, it's just another sign of, you know, this is hard to do, and it, it's it's frustrating, like you said, Nick, to not see the total benefits.
0: Yeah. You know, and those, those building blocks, man, that uh, it really makes you appreciate. And I know, like, I know a lot, a lot of White Sox fans get upset when you talk about the glory days or whatever, but it's really what makes guys like Paul Konerko and Mark Burley so special to me personally is because they, they were our rocks. They were Mark Burley never pitched for anybody else after us either. I don't, I refuse to acknowledge that. Um, but like, it was just, it was, it was always nice that no matter how bad this team was or what we were bringing in or what we were taking out, that those two guys were going to be there. And those were guys that were going to be like the, the front of that team, you know, and you're right. It's very hard to get that. It, especially in a, it, a, especially in the game today where everybody is trying to win. Now everybody's trying to be super aggressive. You have the New York Mets and their payroll, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a different, it's a different setup that we used to have. Um, so it is a lot, a lot more rare, especially for a team who uh, refuses to bring up uh, six figure contracts. Jerry Reinser, sorry, I didn't mean to scare you, but anyway, ladies and gentlemen, that is all we have this week for the Sox on 35th podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and anywhere else to get your podcast. Also be sure to check out the website at Soxon35th.com, as well as following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Sox on 35th to stay up to date with your Chicago White Sox. This has been Duke Coughlin, joined as always by Jordan Lazowski and Nick Gower. We'll be back next week to we cover another exciting week of White Sox baseball. Thank you, and
1: go Sox! Go Sox! Sox!